Don't pay retail for your diamond engagement ring or gift. Come to CleanOrigin.com. Founded by a leading family in the diamond industry for more than a century, we're experts in lab-grown diamonds because that's all we do. Clean Origin, the only diamond jewelers who give you a 100-day, no-questions-asked return on your purchase. Head to CleanOrigin.com or one of our retail stores and mention code RADIO10 for 10% off your purchase. That's CleanOrigin.com, code RADIO10. Why choose a Sleep Number Smart Bed? Can I make my side softer? Can I make my side firmer? Whenever I want? Can, Can we, we sleep, sleep cooler? Sleep Number does that. Cools up to eight times faster and lets you choose your ideal comfort on either side. 94% of Sleep Number smart sleepers report better sleep. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. To find a store near you, visit sleepnumber.com. One of the major topics when discussing meteorology is climate change, and we've certainly heard a great deal about it over the past decade. With destructive western wildfires and stronger hurricanes, it seems climate change manages to become a major part of conversations, and rightly so. Today we're talking with author David Pogue, who wants us to know how to prepare for the effects of climate change in our personal lives. From planning your diet to personal investments to how to build and fortify your home, even how to talk to your kids about climate change. His new book outlines it all. Let's dig in. David, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Why, thank you so much. Do, do most of your guests call you Marshall or Dr. Shepard? Marshall is fine. Dr. Shepard is fine. Whatever you're more comfortable with, but Marshall works for me. So we'll how, go how about with that. Dude, is that okay? No, dude? <laughs> not, not dude, because there actually is a weather dude out there named Nick Walker, a colleague of mine, oh. actually, at the Weather Channel, believe it or not. He goes by Weather Dude. So shout out to Nick Walker, by the way, if you're listening. He's a really awesome meteorologist <laughs> and does some really interesting things with music himself because I'm seeing you graduated from Yale University with a BA in music. In fact, let me give some of your background before we get right. into the conversation. You're from Shaker House, Heights, Ohio. Uh, graduated from Yale with a BA in music, um, American technology and science writer and TV presenter. In 1999, he launched his own series of computer how-to books called the Missing Manual Series, uh, which now includes, whoa, over 100 titles covering everything from Mac and window operating systems to applications. So I can already see we're dealing with somewhat of a renaissance man here. Uh, some of the other things he's done, he's written dozens of books, including Pogue's Basics, which was on the New York Times bestseller list in 2014. Uh, he's an Emmy-winning correspondent for CBS uh, News Sunday Morning, which I've been a big fan of for many years. Author of the Crowdwise column in the New York Times, Smarter Living section. And get this, he's hosted 18 Nova specials on PBS, including Nova Science Now, the Making Stuff series, and Hunting the Elements. A good friend of Nova, I've been on a couple of episodes myself with uh, our good friend Miles O'Brien. Uh, he has written or co-written seven books for the Dummy series, uh, written, uh, written, uh, read some of those, and done many other things. And since 2012, he served as an MC for the Na annual National Academy of Television Arts and Sciences Technical and engineering Emmy ceremony in Las Vegas. So clearly someone with, you know, that we don't necessarily always have on Weather Geeks. So I'm gonna uh, really enjoy this conversation on how to prepare for climate change, a practical guide. And I, this is actually fascinating to me. Um, before we get into that though, you study music at Yale and even worked intermittently as a conductor and a arranger in Broadway musicals, I'm told. So how did you get into science and technology? <laughs> Hell if I know. 
Uh, it's been a long, strange journey. The short answer is that I got my first computer in 1984 for the purpose of doing sheet music because I had it in my head that I was going to be a Broadway composer. And I became uh, enamored of this very first Mac. Um, I wound up being the guy that taught everybody in New York in the Broadway industry how to use computers for sheet music and other stuff. And one thing led to another, and I, it occurred to me that I could get free software if I was a reviewer of software. <laughs> so, so starting with uh, computer magazines, I started writing about music and graphics programs so that I could get a free copy, basically. And uh, one thing led to another. That I, I wrote for a, a computer magazine for 13 years, and then the New York Times needed a technology columnist in 2000. So I wrote for the, uh, a weekly technology column for the Times for 13 years. And through that, CBS Sunday Morning asked if I would start doing technology and science stories for them. And then Nova came a call and said, can you do some science stories for us? And uh, yeah, I just, I just keep answering the phone and saying yes. That's right. You're probably a lot like me. And uh, I struggle with saying no at times to things that I probably should have. But I, I enjoy doing various things. And it sounds like, but I'm curious, any, any similarity? I mean, your music background and sort of technology. I mean, I know there's overlap and similarity. I mean, have you found that to be the case? I, I think so. I, my my uh, armchair analysis is that music and technology and science have one thing in common in that from a brain perspective they're both rule-based disciplines but within those rules there's creativity so i think that's kind of kind of like the similarity now if i were to put you on the spot which i guess i'm about to do (laughs) and ask you what is the most sort of intriguing or enlightening science piece or two that you've written anything that jump out at you that if you were to sort of give that as your sort of signature piece you would do it you know, um, I'm I'm about to launch a podcast of my own. That's right, Marshall. We are now competitors on the oh, landscape. Let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> I'll have to have you on as a guest. <laughs> and the, the podcast launches in February, and it's called Unsung Science with David Pogue. And it's it's stories, the stories behind successful scientific projects that are presented to us as you know, a done deal, but there's actually, there was actually a long road to get there. And that's what we're going to explore. And the opening episode, I just love this. It's called what happened to the mosquitoes in Fresno. Hmm. And basically uh, with climate change, m- mosquitoes, as you, I'm sure, you know, are proceeding northward. They're infecting more of the country, more mosquitoes in more places, bringing more diseases. And in Fresno, they had a particular infestation of this really nasty bug, called Aedes aegypti. This, the species of, of mosquito uh, brings a lot of disease with it, and they bite multiple times. Anyway, so there are various ways to deal with the mosquito problem. You can spray, which has obvious drawbacks. It, it also kills the beneficial insects. Um, you can genetically modify them so that their offspring don't hatch or whatever, and that's also pretty controversial because... You know, do we really want to release into the wild millions of new tampered mosquitoes that, you know, enter the food chain and scare people and so on? Um, But Google, well, Google's sister company, Verily, another one of those uh, 
uh, alphabet companies, decided to try the sterile insect technique, or SIT. And basically, they built this mosquito-rearing factory in Silicon Valley where they would raise tens of millions of mosquitoes. They built a machine that uses optical computer recognition to differentiate the males from the females. Because I don't know how many people know this, but male mosquitoes do not bite. They don't even have the mouth parts for it. They can't oh, bite. Only females. Matter. Yeah. So the the goal was to sterilize – well, not to sterilize. The goal was to introduce into the males this very common naturally occurring bacteria um, that renders them incompatible uh, sexually with the females. So they then <laughs> drove around Fresno, California as a test spraying – these infected male mosquitoes into the environment, 20 million of them. And by the end, oh, and the, and the idea is these males don't know that anything's wrong with them. They have sex with the females who don't think there's anything wrong with the males. The females lay their eggs, no idea that anything's wrong with the eggs, but the eggs never hatch. Ah. So in one summer, they knocked down the mosquito population in Fresno by 95%. Wow. So it's just an amazing, ingenious story, completely safe, safely using, you know, a highly artificial means of introducing a very natural bacteria into these males. Um, and now they're going to try it in uh, Singapore. They're going to try a much bigger test case. And I mean, it could save millions of lives a year. And, uh, you know, as you were talking about this sort of migration northward of vectors like mosquitoes, uh, I, I recall a time that I was at a conference and there were these Canadian doctors in the hotel and they were there to study Lyme disease because they were talking about how, you know, Lyme disease wasn't really something they dealt with in Canada. But as as things sort of migrated further north as the climate envelope or the temperature envelope that they the, that particular vector, the, I guess it's a tick, can survive as it moves further north where they, they now have to deal with Lyme disease, which which is a, an excellent transition because I'm I'm really curious as to how you started sort of down this road of climate change. I mean, what, what, what was sort of the, I guess, the stimulus for you going that route? Well, it's, it's really the combination of two channels of my career. One is, uh, as you mentioned in your intro, I've been a how-to author for decades. I've been writing, you know, computer, iPhone, Mac, Windows books for many years. So I'm kind of an explainer to begin with. And then also for the last 10 years or so, I've been doing more and more environmental reporting for CBS Sunday Morning. So I've done multiple stories on climate change and uh, fracking and um, the plastics problem and so on. Um, so this was just kind of a, a merging of the two. And it, the, the book wasn't even my idea. I proposed another book to Simon & Schuster. And at this initial meeting, they're like, yeah, 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 we like that idea. So two book deal. The other book is something we want to do called How to Prepare for Climate Change. And I went, oh, that is pure gold. I mean, because th there's this famous quote by John Holdren. He was Barack Obama's science advisor. Well. And yeah, you've probably heard this, Marshall, in climate circles. He basically said there's three ways that we're going to respond to climate change. There's mitigation, trying to stop it. There's adaptation, trying to cope with it. And there's suffering. And how much we do of the first two determines how much we're going to do of the third. So 
what amazed me is there are hundreds of books about climate change out there, hundreds, and all of them are dedicated to mitigation, which is super important. And we got to mitigate. We got to stop flying and switch to electric cars, stop eating red meat. But there's more to it than that. And and now it's kind of a little bit late to stop climate change in its tracks. Now we need to start thinking about the adaptation part. And to my knowledge, there hasn't been a single book about what individuals can do to adapt, like where to live and how to insure and how to invest and how to talk to your kids and stuff like that. So that was sort of the origin story. I realized that here was a, a, a ripe topic that literally nobody had touched. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I'm speaking with Renaissance man David Poe, author, uh, writer, writer. producer, musician, uh, television journalist, and more. I, I, I can't even really put into words all of the things that he's done, but we're talking about uh, a new book, How to Prepare for Climate Change, A Practical Guide to Surviving the Chaos. That's the title of the book. Um, I imagine that you have some thoughts. Uh, I, mean, I want to get your thought. Look, I'm a climate scientist, so I deal with this all the time in public space with policymakers when I have to testify before the House or Congress or, or and all those things that I do. But, you know, I think we are moving the needle on perspectives on climate change in this country and certainly around the world. They've kind of gotten it for the most part. But there's still pockets of skepticism and denial. That's going away. Do you, as someone that wrote this book, and I believe that even people that perhaps understand that climate change is a real thing that we need to be concerned about, do you, in your opinion, feel that the majority of the population is simply unprepared or have no idea how this sort of big thing that's about the year 2080 or polar bears actually affects their lives? Uh, yeah, that's a great question and one I, I dove into a lot. There's actually a couple sections of the book on how to deal with climate deniers, including how to help your kids deal with climate deniers. I speak from personal experience. My 16-year-old comes home and he's like, Dad, Richie says... Anyway. Well, my, um, my 17-year-old, I've heard similar stories, trust me. Oh, really? <laughs> no, she says friends like because they know what I do and so they challenge her. Yeah, exactly. I mean, as you say, the news is pretty good. First of all, I, it, it astounds me as a, as a guy who is not a climate change scientist that we bandy around this term climate denier 
without any real understanding of which of two things we're talking about. So the first category is people who don't think the climate is changing. And I think at this point, I mean, after 2020, I think that's a vanishingly small number. I mean, all you got to do is turn on the weather channel and you can you can see that the hurricanes are changing, the, the rainstorms are changing, the wildfires are changing. Um, the second category is people who see that the weather is changing but believe that it's a natural cycle. They believe it has nothing to do with human activities, nothing to do with greenhouse gases. And that number is also shrinking a lot. There's this uh, outfit called the Yale Center for Climate Communications, and their big project every year is a poll, a study of what Americans believe about climate change. And the number of people who say that climate change is a natural cycle is shrinking year by year by big drops year by year. This year, or sorry, the last one was in April 2020, and it was 32% of Americans believe that it's a natural cycle. So I thought that was depressing. I thought, oh, my God, how can these people have their heads in the sand? And you must know, Marshall, who David Wallace Wells is. He wrote uh, The Uninhabitable Earth, another big climate change bestseller. And he said, no, I think that's great. I mean, in this polarized country, anytime you can get over 50% of the population to believe something, that's, that's an achievement. He pointed out that 25% of Americans believe that aliens walk among us. So <laughs> like, we're doing pretty well when 72% of the population is sold on the science. Yeah, and I and that 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 survey that you're talking about by my friends up there at Yale Climate Communication, the Six America study. One of the things that really is um, exciting to me about it is that last category. It's the dismissive group. These are the folks that are arguing with us on Twitter, or you know, just just won't relent at the Thanksgiving dinner table about why you're wrong about climate change. <laughs> That number has gone from about 13% I've watched in the last uh, decade down to about 7 or 8%. So those are folks that you're not going to really move the needle on, whether they read your book or listen to me or what's in the weather geeks or not. So uh, I, I appreciate that you acknowledge that group because they've done some really uh, great things. Um, I'm curious about some other, you know, you mentioned that you, you deal with climate denial. What are some of the other topics that you touch on in your book that, you know, for the listeners, what, what are some nuggets out there that you kind of dive into in your chapters? Well, you know, the, the first one, according to my editor, is, is uh, one of the most useful of all. It's called Acclimating to Climate Change. It's about how to address your own anxiety and eco-despair, which is, um, I mean, it's pretty terrifying. I mean, you feel like the future is doomed and we caused it and there's nothing we can do about it and we're ruining the world for our kids. Uh, it's a pretty devastating thought. And in a way, I, you know, I talked to many. So first of all, I should say, I'm obviously not a climatologist. I'm not a meteorologist. I'm not an insurance expert, uh, although I've kind of become one. Uh, I'm not uh, an expert on building or child psychology or anything the book covers. Um, this book is based on a year of expert interviews. Um, I'm doing kind of a reporting synthesis uh, explainer thing. And um, I talked to a bunch of psychologists, climate psychologists, and they all said that the cure for depression is action. So any little thing that you can do to make you feel like you do have some control over your situation makes you feel better. Um, depression is not just feeling bad. It's feeling bad with the sense that you can't do anything about it, that you're helpless. So that, in a way, is a justification for the whole book because the whole book 
is about taking actions to improve the situation. So, yeah, so I was very proud of the of the way I was able to cover the the psychological aspects of climate change, both for you and, and for your kids. One, one of the things that I was really inspired by that I see you write about in the book or know that you write about is things like how people should be investing with climate change in mind or their diet. Talk about those things. Yeah. Oh, man. The investing thing was super fun. Um, first of all, I have to ask, uh, you know, is is it right to include an investment chapter in this book? Because it's, you know, investing is something that affluent people do. And, you know, should we really be talking to people about exploiting climate change, making money from climate change? And before diving in, I interviewed a bunch of people and, and their argument was, yes, you should. Because when you invest in clean companies, you, you are supporting their work. You are helping to mitigate the problem for everybody. So it's kind of, as one of them put it, it's, it's no duh investing because you, you stand to make a lot of money and at the same time you're helping the planet. So the first thought with investing is, oh, I know, uh, solar panels. I'll invest in solar panels. Turns out that's a poor investment because, um, as, as you know well, Marshall, the price of solar power has crashed in the last 15 years way faster than anybody predicted. Solar panel is now so cheap. In many places, it's cheaper to take a coal plant offline and build a whole new solar farm than it is to keep running the coal factory. Um, and so... Uh, the Chinese are manufacturing these solar panels as a commodity, and they're just dumping them on the market. So you're not going to make money investing in solar panels. Or And wind is the same situation. Wind power is also taken off uh, because it's getting so cheap. But one of my experts pointed out that many states now have a mandate, a law, that by 2030 or whatever, they have to be getting 50% of their power from renewable energy. And they have to buy that energy from someone who is going to be the recipient of those lucrative contracts, and that is the utilities. So <clears throat> companies like NextEra and Excel Energy, these are public utilities that are investing hard in switching from fossil fuels to sustainable energy, and they are going to be the one with these big national customers. They're going to do really well. So that's a great place to put your money. Um, Electric cars are coming on hard and fast to everybody's shock. General Motors <laughs> last week announced that they're going to become an all-electric car company. I, General I saw, Motors? What I the? saw that. I did. Wow. I mean, I, I, I was, I have to say I was a little, whoa. <laughs> General yeah, Motors. Whoever thought. But yeah, credit but that, to them, man. But I think, uh, that, but I think that, that sort of interesting because, you know, Already investing is hard and people that aren't necessarily experts in it, you know, perhaps think they know some things, but the nuances of how sort of a climate change investor might think is perhaps very different with what seems obvious to them. And so I think yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure your book has some really interesting insights that people will want to delve into. What about yeah. diet? Well, just, just to finish up that thought. So, yeah, so all the electric cars come, are coming out. So you think upstream from that, they have to get their lithium for the lithium-ion batteries from somewhere. They have to buy their, and so there are these, like Albemarle's, an American lithium mining company, and they have to buy their components from someone, somewhere. So there are these companies that make the connectors and the wires and, and so on. So you think upstream from the car companies to find the really good stuff. 
And I, when we come back, I'll, I'll ask you that question about diet. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. And I'm talking about Dave, talking to David Pogue about how to prepare for climate change. He's written a book about it. And it's a really important book that's filling a, a gap in the marketplace because I don't think people think about these things. And this is a really good resource to pick up to sort of get at those, what I often call in my own lectures and talks, kitchen table issues for families. Uh, again, as a scientist, I deal with climate change from the perspective of science, technology, and so forth. But at the end of the day, it's the kitchen table issues. I'm a contributor to Forbes magazine, and I wrote an article, I guess, a year or so ago, talking about there was a big discussion about climate change and about national. Well, it was really more about the whole idea of national emergency as it relates to, I think, immigration. So I wrote an article in Forbes saying, wait a minute, climate change is a national emergency issue because of the infrastructure, food security, energy, water supply, infrastructure, health, and so forth. And so at a layer below that, it's just this kitchen table issues about people, their, their, their investment portfolios and the food that they eat and their, their mental health and well-being and so forth. And that, it sounds like you're getting into all of those. So I, I, before we went to break, I was talking about diet because you, you, you write about diet. Yeah, that's right. In, in a couple of different ways. There's one whole chapter called um, what to Grow. And it turns out, I did not know this, that gardening is the number one most popular hobby in America. Um, but gardeners know that <laughs> things aren't growing the way they used to because the, the USDA climate zone map has shifted northward. This is the map that shows when different kinds of plants will, will bloom and grow. And we have this now, uh, this pollination mismatch between when the blooms appear and then when the the bees and the bugs come to pollinate. They, they miss each other with the timing now because spring is starting sooner. Um, so anyway, so there's guidance on what to grow, what to grow if you want to have sort of survival garden because certain things all weather disasters have in common, and that's disruptions in power, disruptions in water, and the grocery store shelves are empty of a lot of staples. So some people like the idea of growing you know, think vegetables that they can put away for the winter, put up for the winter, or even grow your own peanuts. So you'll just have something. Um, but then there's also discussion of this larger topic of the nation's diet. And I'm, I know you must be quietly saying, okay, tell me something I don't know, Pogue, because you, you know all this, Marshall. But um, the, the red meat issue is unbelievable. One third of all non-frozen land on the planet is dedicated to growing livestock. And cows are the worst. A single cow belches up 12 gallons of methane an hour. We talk about carbon dioxide as a greenhouse gas. Dude, methane is the real killer. 80 times worse. Um, and cows are methane factories. 
Um, they consume way disproportionate amounts of water, way disproportionate amount of land. They emit the worst greenhouse gases. We eat way too much of it for our health um, and for the planet. And so there are some fantastic studies um, that show how easy this would be to shift. For example, there's a really cool study where they went to a restaurant with a, a vegetarian section on the menu, which people typically ignore. And they mixed in those entrees among the meat entrees without comment, without saying anything unusual about them. And of course, people order the stigma of vegetarian. Um, and there's another concept. Uh, Diego Rose is a food scientist at Tulane. And he, he told me like a big, a big idea now among chefs and restaurants is the protein flip. And this is instead of thinking what's for dinner and then naming the meat that's surrounded on the edges of the plate with non-meat material, flip it. So it's pieces of shrimp in pasta or pieces of beef in vegetables or rice so that the beef is um, an ingredient but not the ingredient. Uh, that would go a long way. I mean, truth to say, America's consumption of beef has declined substantially, like 10% in the last 20 years. Um, but unfortunately, India and China are taking up the slack. In China, beef is considered the millionaire's meat. It's something you aspire to eat. So as their middle class grows, more and more people are looking after those those burgers. Yeah, and this is certainly something I've been involved with a project called Drawdown Georgia here in the state of Georgia, which is a sort of state version of the project drawdown effort. And uh, certainly there was a discussion about sort of the importance of shifting diets as a way to mitigate carbon emissions and so forth for the very reasons that you talk about. I will raise my hand as someone that has become a part of that hobby of gardening because during the lockdowns from COVID, I started a vegetable garden in my backyard there for the first time and, you know, learned a little about sort of the mismatch issues and pollinization that you talked about and even started composting our, our food waste, which keeps food out of the landfills, which can also be a source of methane as well. Uh, so, exactly. Uh, Nicely done, sir. Yeah, we yeah. did too. Yeah, it's, a, it's really neat. So I'm now in the process of prepping my spring garden with my compost. But getting back to, you know, the book and sort of this whole idea of preparing for climate change. I mean, and by the way, where, where can people, I want to kind of make sure I get this in before I move on. Where can people purchase the book? Well, uh, it should be available anywhere. Uh, it's already available to pre-order either from Amazon or Barnes & Noble or your local independent bookshop. Uh, the book comes out uh, on January 26th, so it should be should be all over the place by then. Yeah, and this we're taping this uh, actually on Inauguration Day, so by the time this airs, the book should be out. So make sure you all go out and get that book. But I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, having written the book, having it on the market now, or out penetrating the market, what ultimately do you want readers to walk away from the book with? Oh, man, that is a phenomenal question. What I want them to walk away with is that unpredictable, intense, destructive weather should no longer surprise you. It's not going to get better from here. Like these wildfires are not going to get smaller. The hurricanes aren't going to get weaker. This is the beginning of a new era. So for anybody to be taken by surprise by this stuff is 
folly. I mean, we know already it's going to happen. 25 million Americans a year are hit by extreme weather. They should be ready and can be ready inexpensively. Just spend an, a Saturday afternoon, make a go bag with everything you'd need to survive outside the house for a couple of days. Food, snacks, flashlight, first aid kit, uh, you know, extra, extra t-shirt. Um, check over your insurance policy. Did you know that your homeowner's insurance does not cover flood? Nobody's does. People are like, what? Of course it does. No, it doesn't. Homeowner's policies do not cover flood. Flood insurance is a separate purchase, and it's supplied by 95% of flood insurance comes from the government, the National Flood Insurance Program, which the government had to start because, of course, all the real insurance companies got out of the business. They're like, we can't make money anymore on flood insurance. There's too much flooding. Um, so, yeah, so check over your insurance and um, and think about in the long term where you want to wind up. Where do you want to retire? 40 million Americans move every year. And increasingly, climate change is a factor in where they decide to go. So the you know the the coasts have hurricanes and sea level rise. The west coast has these unbelievable wildfire wildfires. And the western half of the U.S. is in a series of on and off droughts. Um, we are really starting to have to think about where we're going to get our drinking water. The aquifer levels are historic low levels. Um, lake Mead, which is the lake formed by the Hoover Dam, which gives drinking water to California and Nevada, is down to one third its regular level. The snow melt in the western states that used to provide a lot of their drinking water, well, the winters are so short now, there's not much snow to provide that water. So you want to think of where can I live that will be water and escape the heat waves, escape the fires, escape the hurricanes. And a lot of people, there's a chapter in the book called Where to Live. And that's the question that we're tackling here. And the answer, if you have a choice, is the Great Lakes area. So, you know, Cleveland, Madison, Duluth, Buffalo, these Rust Belt towns, not only is the cost of living incredibly low, and not only do they have room to grow, um, but they escape virtually all of the big extreme weather disasters, um, and they have unlimited, copious, clean, fresh lake water to drink. Um, so yeah. if, if you have a choice... It's really the Great Lakes area. I, I heard from a realtor that for in Vermont that all these Californians are taking up residence in Vermont and New Hampshire. And it makes perfect sense. You know, the North is becoming the ultimate climate haven for this country. Yeah, that makes sense. And I know as someone who lives here in the South, in Georgia, we we actually have the, uh, I guess, the not the luxury of living in a place where we get pretty much every weather extreme from hurricanes to floods to heat waves to drought to tornadoes and wildfires. Yeah. We get, yeah. we get it all here in the South, so I certainly resonate with that. Is, is there anywhere that our listeners can follow you on social media or find you on, on the Internet? Sure. My last name is Pogue, P, like P-O-G-U-E, like Vogue with a P. And uh, that's my handle on Twitter, Pogue. And, um, you know, Facebook, I'm, I'm easy to find. And my website is davidpogue.com. Okay, well, I want to make sure our listeners go out and get that. Like I said, as you're listening to us, I'm certain the book is already available. So definitely check that out. But before we go, though, I have to do something we do at every podcast. It's called the Geek of the Week. We like to highlight a scientist, superstar, a great geologist, or a weather weenie at the end of every podcast. This episode's Geek of the Week is Serena Marie 
Arnold. She saw a tornado at five years old and knew she wanted to become a meteorologist. Serena is a meteorologist and vice president of customer success and an author. She wrote a children's book entitled The Weather Story with Frances Fox. The book is about the weather that includes her own watercolor illustrations. Her goal is to help educate kids, keep them safe, and help them be less scared of weather. Congratulations, Serena. And if you know someone or if you or yourself are deserving of being a candidate for our next Geek of the Week, check out our social media pages. David, thank you so much for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. And thank you, Marshall. Keep up the good work. Absolutely. And I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. We'll see you next time.